Hi there, I'm Matt Ashburn, host of the Needlestack podcast. Needlestack is brought to you by Authenticate, creators of the go-to online investigation platform, Silo for Research. If you're looking for a way to conduct research anonymously, protect against cyber threats, all while avoid tipping off your investigative targets, then you want to try Silo for Research. The Silo Research platform completely isolates your online web browsing, allowing you a choice of location and digital fingerprint, and also has built-in workflow and automation tools. The best part is that Silo for Research is software as a service, so it can be used from any computer or location without the need for things like virtual machines, standalone networks, or, or dirty networks. To learn more about Silo for Research, visit Authenticate.com. That's Authentic with the number 8, .com. Obviously, anyone can go on the, the dark web, and my handle on there is Oz Freelancer. Anyone can go on there and say, I'm Oz Freelancer. The only way that they can check that I really that they're really talking to me is um, by having me sign a, a note with uh, PGP encryption. Welcome to Needlestack, the podcast for professional online research. I'm your host, Matt Ashburn, and personally, I like my dark web to have at least 70% cacao. And I'm Jeff Phillips, tech industry veteran and curious to a fault. Today, we're continuing the dark web conversation, as we've done in some prior uh, podcasts. Now, in this episode, we'll hear from someone who has lived and breathed and written about the dark web for many years. So we're joined by true crime writer and investigative journalist, Eileen Ormsby. Eileen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to talking about it. Uh, we're super excited. Um, you know, I was on your website and, and I had read she has shopped on darknet mar markets, contributed to forums, waited in red rooms and been threatened by hitmen uh, on murder for hire sites. Um, so I, I can imagine you've seen some pretty interesting things and some things people couldn't even imagine. Um, so how, how did you get into this topic uh, from a journalist and from an author perspective, the dark web? And, and did you know what you were getting into uh, once you got started? Well, it sort of started for me around 2011, 2012, when I first heard about something called the Silk Road which was the first major point-and-click dark web drugs market. I, I'd heard about it and I logged on to have a look at it and, uh, you know, it was absolutely fascinating because it was simply like an eBay for drugs. It was like any other e-commerce platform. It had little pictures of, of the things that you could buy and pop into your, your basket and take home. And uh, the only thing was that these things were uh, cocaine, heroin, ecstasy, marijuana, and uh, all that were ready to be delivered directly to your door by the postman. And it was a pretty fascinating story, and it was still very much in its infancy at the time. So I pitched that to, uh, as a freelance journalist, I pitched that to a newspaper, major newspaper here in Melbourne, and uh, they, they took up that, that story. And so that was a, a pretty big story in, I think, April 2012, it finally went to, um, to print. And from there, my uh, editor just kept on asking for more and more dark web stories. So I started hanging around on the dark web very much every single day, but especially in that Silk Road because uh, that was the, the most interesting uh, place to be at the time. And it also had these really uh, engaged forums where everybody that was using it was getting very, very involved and talking about um, not only buying and selling drugs, which you could expect, but also philosophy. They had a book club. They had a movie club. Um, they had a lot of harm reduction stories in there. And it was, it was you know, 
as I said at the time, a lot of people said I came for the drugs, I stayed for the revolution. And it's almost <laughs> what it felt like at the time because it was uh, so audacious, so different from anything you'd ever seen. The very fact that this was uh, a place that's on the dark web, it doesn't want to be hidden, it's not trying to be hidden, it's actually advertising for to get as many people uh, to go there as possible. You know, it's it's not some secret secret place. They're actually, you know, trying to get as many customers as possible, just like any other e-commerce platform. So that made it fascinating, uh, considering, you know, what they were doing was very, very illegal. I, I'm curious, Aileen, so as a, as an, as a lawyer turned author turned journalist, uh, what's your process for beginning a story? Uh, are you out there looking for, for things on the dark web? Are you following leads that you found previously? Are you getting tips? What's the process like for you? Well, certainly in, in the early days, um, you know, most of the time was spent on, on the Silk Road and my process there was to let them all know, uh, this is me. I've written this story. I'm writing more stories. If you want to tell me your story, I'd really love to hear it. And um, surprisingly, you know, not surprisingly, a few people were, were um, had some very choice words to say about a journalist being in their forum. Uh, but more than that, the, the people that ran the Silk Road um, and, you know, so the, the staff of the Silk Road and most of the uh, major vendors on the Silk Road were actually very, very keen to tell their side of, of, of things. You know, a lot of them were very much into ending the war on drugs, drug reform. A lot of people, uh, especially the buyers that were on Silk Road, their only crime was taking drugs, which, you know, in and of itself should, should not be a crime. And uh, so a lot of people were very, very keen to talk to somebody who was not tabloid, who they could trust uh, was going to, to give the story fairly from, and, uh, yeah, from the side of the criminals. Um, you know, plenty of people do it from the law enforcement narrative. I was doing it from the inside. And some of the work you've done seems inherently risky. As Jeff noted, you've been, uh, in some cases, even threatened by purported hitmen that are out there. When you were starting this out, did you have an idea of some of the precautions that you needed to take? Did you have an idea of the risk? And are there any best practices that you've developed over the years? In a lot of ways, I take a lot less precautions because the main the main precautions that you take when you're on the dark web are to prevent yourself from being doxxed. And I decided very, very early in the, the, um, the days that the best way to prevent myself from being doxxed was just to tell everybody who I was. And then they have a choice of whether they're going to speak to me or not. Um, so I was always very open and honest about who I was. Um, so, yeah, I, I, obviously I did learn all those things. I learned um, uh, how to boot from tails and get onto tour and, and do all the, all the things that uh, most security conscious people do. But all those things really are just to, to uh, prevent people from finding out who you are. And if you're going around and telling them who you are anyway, doesn't matter so much. The things that I really needed to make sure that I, I had a handle on were things like PGP encryption because most of the people that you're talking to will not speak to you without PGP encryption. And that's also the way that you make sure that you that you are talking to the person that you're talking to. Like obviously anyone can go on the, the dark web and my handle on there is Oz Freelancer. Anyone can go on there and say, I'm Oz Freelancer. The only way that they can check that I really that they're really talking to me is um, by having me sign a, a note with uh, PGP encryption. So, you know, that's very, very important for trust on the dark web. Same, same with me. Anyone could say, hey, I am the Dread Pirate Roberts. I own Silk Road, but I can only be sure that I'm speaking to the Dread Pirate Roberts if he's signed a PGP um, a note to me. So uh, they're the sort of things that I really needed to, to learn as a journalist. 
Super interesting. You know, honesty, the best policy there in that, um, you know, if you want to tell your story, um, tell it. If not, um, and you've not had any problems, I take it, since then from a doxing perspective. Well, other than the, the hitman wanting to kill me, but that was yes. okay because <laughs> because um, what, what happened there was, you know, there's always been hitman sites on the dark web and I've always been 100% certain that they are fake. Uh, and there's a very basic reason for this. The only things that it's really um, viable to sell on the dark web are things that are easily transferable and things that have repeat custom. So hiring a hitman is not an easily transferable thing. It is a personal service. Someone has to go out and, and carry out the murder. And not only that, you're more likely than not only to want one hit, you know, there's not many people that want hit after hit after hit. So it's not a repeat service thing. So once you've paid a hitman in cryptocurrency who you don't know, you don't know who this person is or where they are, what possible incentive do they have to carry out the hit? There is no incentive to do that. You're not going to come back and be a repeat customer like the drug buyers, um, you know. And so I was 100% certain that they were all fake, including this one that, that bounced out onto, onto the dark web in about 2016 called uh, Baser Mafia. But Baser Mafia was a bit different in that they were advertising all over the clear web, especially Reddit, places like that. They had testimonials from people that had had um, uh, successful hits carried out on them. And uh, But I was still 100% sure that they were not real. And the owner of Visa Mafia started writing to me and saying, look, you know, stop, stop saying we're not real. We are real. We are real. But uh, unfortunately for him, around that same time, someone alerted me to a hacked database of the back door of the Visa Mafia. And so what I had then was um, hundreds and hundreds of pages of all the communications between Visa Mafia and people who had paid with Bitcoin to have hits taken out. Mm. And what those communications showed me was that the owner of Visa Mafia, and at that time it was just one person, was um, really what we would uh, traditionally call a Nigerian scammer, as in um, not that he came from Nigeria, but he was the sort of person that would take some money and then keep on... Um, having issues, why the hitman didn't turn up. He needs more money and more money and more money and keep on dragging all the more money out of his victims until they finally realised they'd been scammed and stopped paying. Mm. But from that hack, um, I had all, all these email messages to and from these people and I also had uh, Bitcoin addresses so that you could actually see that these Bitcoin had been paid by people who genuinely wanted a hit carried out. So that's where the danger was, was in those people. The danger was not in the owner of Visa Mafia because um, he very much did not want anyone to be hurt. Uh, well, he, you know, he, he didn't care that much, but he, he certainly went out of his way to make sure that um, uh, people weren't getting hurt. And I knew that. So when he came to me and he said, look, I know who you are. You don't know who I am. Um, I'm going to send people around, to my, my operatives around to, to beat you up and kill you. I knew that he didn't have any operatives. <laughs> and I knew that they were very much empty threats. So uh, I let him know that I knew that after a while. He, I didn't tell him right away that um, I had the hack of his site, so he didn't know. And um, I also was working with... Uh, um, a cybersecurity researcher who was able to get into the back door and watch things happen live. Um, and yes, we did we did go to law enforcement about it all. That's another very long mm. story, getting law enforcement to believe anything you say about a um, online hitman. Um, yeah, so by the time he was threatening me, I knew that it, it, they were empty threats. So I wasn't too worried about it. And then I engaged with him because I really wanted to, to I wanted to write a story with him about how, you know, he was he was um, fooling all these people. 
and he eventually sort of came around and we, we almost had a friendly relationship. We, we started not just um, talking on his over his encrypted um, messaging service but through Google Hangouts and everything um, just in real time and he even sent me a couple of um, uh, hits that were being ordered in Australia so that I could uh, follow them up with, with law enforcement here. Um, he told me what was going on in his business, told me about his family, things like that. So, um, yeah, it, it became uh, quite surreal, I have to say. I never got to meet that, him, but it became quite surreal. That is surreal. Wow. Uh, that's what I've got on that as well. Now, so you have you started with Silk Road, you know, what did you say that was? That was probably in 2012 when you wrote that first article. Um, we're 10 years later. Uh, you're still, you've got many books and articles uh, related to the dark web. Anything you can say, you know, have the people changed or the sites you've encountered changed or your, your perception of the dark web and who's on it? Has, has that evolved over the, the last 10 years? I would almost say devolved. Um, the, the people that are on it are, are different. Um, the markets are very different. In, in a lot of ways, I don't think the darknet markets uh, would have become what they are if the first darknet market hadn't been run by, um, you know, the Dread Pirate Roberts, Ross Ulbricht, the person it was run by, because it was very much run um, as a, a philosophical uh, thing as well as being, you know, to buy and sell drugs. And it was run very, um, we, we could say, honestly on his side in that he was very much trying to make sure that everybody had a good customer user experience. And so it ran very smoothly for for a couple of years and also he got this almost cult-like following the, the people that were involved in the early days they they weren't just there to buy and sell drugs and that's it um and now those there, there are new markets i would suspect a lot of them are, are being run by um organized crime and they are very much just about buying and selling drugs and nothing else no no one's there for the discussions no one's there for the book book um, book nights than movie nights, anything like that. They are they are there to buy and sell drugs, and, and it's purely commercial. Um, so yeah, it's definitely changed that in that way, and that also obviously makes it a lot less interesting to hang around on a daily basis because there aren't all these really interesting discussions going on. There's other places in the dark web where you still have that, especially amongst the psychedelic community. But yeah, um, as far as being an interesting place to hang out, it's, it's just. It's just not that anymore. Um, but there's more people than ever before. A lot of people think, oh, Silk Road was the biggest. It's been dwarfed by the markets that have come after it when it comes to how much money is going through them. Um, you know, and one of the big changes now is, is um, uh, very few markets will accept Bitcoin anymore. It has to be Monero because um, Bitcoin has that open blockchain, which means that you can trace absolutely, once you know one uh, transaction that's taken place and you know who's on that side of that transaction there's a lot of things that you can trace and you know there's there's places like chain analysis and that now that are going historically and being able to, to trace bitcoin through tumblers through all sorts of um you know ways of, of trying to obfuscate what what they are the transactions are so um people are moving over to monero now that they realize that bitcoin is anything but anonymous Eileen, you authored a book called Silk Road, uh, and, and that gave pretty amazing insight into the rise and fall of the dark web marketplace of the same name. How did you begin your research there? What, what brought about the interest? Well, I'd already spoken to a lot of people. I'd interviewed a lot of people because of my articles that I was doing. And um, then I mentioned to the Dread Pirate Roberts, I, I want to write a book about Silk Road. Will you help me out? And he said, oh, look, you know, show me a first draft once you've done it, and I'll see how much input I'll have into it. 
So it was just a matter of gathering all the stories that I'd I'd come up with over the, over the years at um, or the year and a half or so at that time. When I pitched it to my publisher, it wasn't the rise and fall of Silk Road. It was the rise and rise of Silk Road because it was still going strong. We all thought it was going to last forever. Um, so it it was only just as I was putting the finishing touches to that first draft that uh, Ross Albrick got caught, Silk Road got uh, shut down, and it became I had to quickly change it with my publisher to a rise and fall situation. So I never got as much input from um, the Dread Pirate Roberts as I would have liked, but I certainly had a lot of input from a lot of other people that were involved, um, including all of the staff members, um, other than, than uh, Ross Albrecht, all his staff members were certainly uh, uh, very helpful in coming forward with stories. And um, I got to meet all of his uh, his main deputies and his mentor afterwards, after they all got arrested um, in various, sometimes in prison, sometimes at home. <laughs> um, uh, when I, for my second book, I got to meet them all in real life. So you met him, but he didn't give yeah. input on that first one? No, not in the first Sorry. book um, because at that time they, no one had been um, gone gone to uh, prison yet. No one, had, People had been arrested, but, um, you know, no one had been tried yet. So that book is actually very much before Ross Ulbricht's trial and at that trial, a lot of things came out that we didn't know about. I, I certainly didn't know about before then. Um, so that's that's why I had to buy the, write the second book, The Darkest Web, because um, uh, there was a lot of information that I hadn't known previously. And also a lot of the the gloss of what I thought Silk Road was, was, you know, this, um, this uh, peaceful utopian sort of place where people could buy and sell drugs um, uh, willingly. Um, a lot of that was not quite as uh, truthful behind behind the scenes as uh, I definitely thought. Yeah, as you mentioned before, you know, it wasn't just Ross that was involved in operating Silk Road, right? It was a number of other deputies and other people. And earlier we were speaking some about those persons that were otherwise involved. And I thought it was interesting that a lot of those people were not motivated by necessarily financial gain, uh, but we're really working on the project because they believed in its philosophy, the sort of the open marketplace, free market economy, uh, libertarian ideals, that type of thing. Can you talk a little about some of the, the other motivations that people had in working on that project? Oh, yeah. Well, definitely there was a, a lot of um, philosophical reasons for it. He was constantly having people offer to work for free for him. Um, you know, and uh, originally the, the doctor, uh, uh, Dr. Fernando Cordovia, um, Who's a Spanish physician? He um, offered to, to work for free to, with the harm reduction advice that he was providing. But then he was eventually put on the payroll um, because <laughs> Red Pirate Roberts had a lot of money on his payroll um, and could afford to do that. So, but yeah, there were always, and he always chose people that had these um, the same sort of ideals that he had. So that's how he chose his staff rather than necessarily technical ability. Obviously, there were some back-end people that had uh, technical ability, but the, the customer-facing staff, the moderators of the, the forums and those sorts of people were all people that shared his ideals. As we start to wrap up here in the next couple of minutes, what are some of the go-to resources that you recommend uh, that folks know about and research on the dark web? Um, oh, look, well, the, the Darknet Market Bible is probably the number one. Um, now, that is actually aimed at people who want to buy drugs on the dark web, but it's also a very, very good primer for anyone who wants to first get onto the dark web and start um, start exploring. It's, I mean, it's really dangerous just to, to get on there to go and find, um, you know, you can find uh, um, 
like wikis and, and starting points on the dark web that we can just start, you know, clicking on, on different links. That can be really dangerous because um, the, the thing that the dark web harbours a lot of, besides drugs, is child exploitation material. So if if you don't know what you're doing and you just start clicking on links, you're almost bound to come across this uh, child exploitation material. So one thing I'm going to warn anybody that just does go there and, and starts looking around is beware of any the word uncensored. Uncensored is just, uh, that just means that this this will link you to child exploitation material and no one, you know, you don't want to see that. It's illegal just to look at it in most of our jurisdictions anyway. So, and it's also stuff that you just can't get out of your head. So, um, you know, you, you do have to be very, very careful if, if you're doing that sort of um, uh, research, research um, anyway. Learn PGP. Uh, PGP encryption is the only way you're going to be able to speak to, if, if the reason that you're going onto the dark web is to uh, speak to people that are using it, um, then you need to learn PGP so that uh, you can encrypt all your messages and also that you can uh, know that you're speaking to the people that you, you think you're speaking to. Um, other than that, it's it's really just a matter of, of good old-fashioned journalism work. It's the same same sort of work that you do off the dark web is what you do on the dark web to, to get people to talk to you and, um, you know, to really tease out the, the stories that are there. Well, I was going to I was going to ask you about some of that advice for listeners, but you've, you've kind of you, you, you hit on that um, really well. One of the things you mentioned there, I've been asked a number of times of, of is it illegal to get on the dark web, which, uh, by the way, listeners, I'm not a lawyer. I, I'm playing one today. But um, but that's a different scenario than what you just said with child exploitation. Right. Um, that if you do come across that and it does show up on your screen, then, then you have issues. But in general, accessing the dark web, like you were doing and hanging out in those marketplaces, if you're not buying the drugs um, and you're just in the forums um, or, or watching uh, uh, what's going on, then that's generally not typically illegal to access the dark web. It has legitimate uses for it, as we've heard from some of our um, our other guests, right? There are legitimate reasons people are on the dark web. Oh, absolutely. Most, most newspapers have got um, a dark web presence so that uh, whistleblowers can upload um, documents to them without any worries about it getting back to them. Even the CIA does so that you can upload uh, information about um, uh, um, threats to, to national security. So the dark web itself is not illegal, but some things on the dark web are, you know, doing some things on the dark web are illegal and visit, just visiting those child exploitation sites could get you into a lot of trouble. They, they can be illegal just per se by visiting them, even if you do it accidentally. Hmm. And Eileen, I wanted to also plug for you, uh, you have an extensive library of books and articles and everything else that you've written, uh, podcast blogs and a lot of other material on your website. So I want to make sure listeners have that readily available. And that's EileenOrmsby.com. Is there anything else you'd like to, to plug for our audience uh, to check out? No, that's fine. That's, everything's there, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks very much to our special guest today, Eileen Ormsby, and thank you to everyone who tuned in to today's show. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast. You can also watch episodes on YouTube and view transcripts and other episode info on our website at authenticate.com slash needlestack. That's authentic with the number eight com slash needlestack. We'll be back next week with more on the dark web with another guest who's used to looking into the dark will be joined by Darkneck Diaries podcast host, Jack Resider. See you then. I love Jack. <laughs> yeah, Jack's a good guy. <laughs> 
Hi there, I'm Matt Ashburn, host of the Needlestack podcast. Needlestack is brought to you by Authenticate, creators of the go-to online investigation platform, Silo for Research. If you're looking for a way to conduct research anonymously, protect against cyber threats, all while avoid tipping off your investigative targets, then you want to try Silo for Research. The Silo Research platform completely isolates your online web browsing, allowing you a choice of location and digital fingerprint, and also has built-in workflow and automation tools. The best part is that Silo for Research is software as a service, so it can be used from any computer or location without the need for things like virtual machines, standalone networks, or, or dirty networks. To learn more about Silo for Research, visit Authenticate.com. That's Authentic with the number 8, .com.